All right, back in, um, we're back in the story. We've been in this series on dating, and we are back in the story of Genesis chapter 24, which is Isaac and Rebecca's courtship. Several years ago, there was a book that came out that rocked the Christian world. Uh, maybe some of you have heard of it. Uh, it was a book simply entitled, I Kissed Dating Goodbye. Anybody ever heard of or read that book? I Kissed I kissed dating goodbye, and um, it, it stirred up a lot of stuff. And it's a helpful book, but on, on another level, it's a problematic book. Because as the title suggests, the author, due to a bad set of experiences and circumstances that some people he knew uh, had been experiencing with the whole dating thing, uh, kind of one of the, the, the messages of the book is we need to kiss dating goodbye and go in another direction. Well, I say that's problematic because uh, the problem with dating is not the institution of dating, it's the people involved in the institution of dating. Sort of like you driving your car down the street, doing what you're supposed to be doing, and someone just um, isn't doing what they're supposed to be doing, and they just run right into you. You're going to write a book called I Kiss Cars Goodbye? No, you're not, because you understand the problem isn't with cars, it's with the people in them. So what needs to be addressed isn't so much the vehicle, it's the people in the vehicle. So that when it comes to dating, the problem is not with the institution of dating, it's the people who are navigating the institution of dating. So we don't think we need to kiss dating goodbye. Instead, what we need to do is we need to spend some moments equipping people to be able to have discernment and wisdom and understanding, to be able to hear God's will as it relates to this hugely and wildly important segment of their lives called dating. And what I said from week one, uh, if you're single, this is a word in season for you. If you're married, don't tune out because especially if you have kids, you have singles in your house. And they need to be uh, discipled and formed in this whole area of dating. So you need to be thinking through, how do I equip them? How do I encourage them? How do I come alongside of them? How do I help them discern if this person is a Canaanite? If you don't understand that reference, go back to week one of our series uh, right there on the app. So, so this is important for us as parents, too, as it relates to how do we form them in this much-needed area of dating. Today I want us to return to Genesis chapter 24. As I made mention in week, in, in week one, Genesis chapter 24 is the longest chapter in the book of Genesis. As I said in week one, it's interesting to me that the longest chapter in the book of Genesis uh, is not concerned with creation. It is not concerned with the problem of sin. But the longest chapter in the book of Genesis, some 67 verses, has everything to do with dating and courtship. That encourages me. Because it tells me that God is concerned with what happens on Friday night. God is concerned about dating. And he has a lot to say about it. So this isn't a time to tune into Oprah. And we got to stop letting television disciple us more in matters of relationships than the word of God. This is a time for us to tune into what God has to say about this subject matter and glean some wisdom from the word of God. The book of Proverbs says wisdom cries in the street. 
And we want to be able to hear uh, wisdom here. So here's what I want to do. Um, as I've said all along, Genesis 24 has so many principles uh, on dating. I want to give you three more today. Um, and these three don't just apply to dating. They also apply to successful marriages as well. But dating is a time of investigation. And in this time of investigation, you need to be asking some serious questions. And if you can't say these three statements to this person you're dating at some point in the relationship, this relationship is not going anywhere. Here's the three statements, three principles coming right out of our text, and I'm going to unpack them. Number one, statement number one, I got you. Statement number two, I am leaving. Statement number three, I love you. Give it to you again. Three statements. Um, this applies not just to singles, but, but married folk. If you can't say these three things in this season of investigating as a single person, this relationship is probably not going to end in marriage. At some point, you need to be able to say, I got you. I'm leaving. I love you. I know it doesn't make sense now, but it's going to make sense. Here we go. Ladies, you need to understand that at the deepest places of a man's heart, the deepest felt need that a man has is the need to feel significant. That was a good place, brothers, for an amen. At the deepest place of a man's heart, men have a felt need to feel significant. Y'all on cue. I love it. I love it. One of the ways we know that is if you just read uh, chapters in the Bible like Ephesians chapter 5 or 1 Peter chapter 3, one of the things that God is constantly saying to wives is respect your husbands. Respect them. What happens when a woman respects a man? God is using her at that moment to minister to one of the deepest places of a man's soul. His need to feel significant. Now, Aretha sang it, but a man wrote it. R-E-S-P-E-C-T. Find out what it means to me. Sock it to me, sock it to me, sock it to me. <laughs> she sang it, but you check the credits. Otis Redding wrote it. Men have a fundamental need to feel significant. Put two men in a room together. Maybe these men have just met for the first time. Set, the, set the, the timer on a clock inside of a minute, maybe even 30 seconds. They're going to start talking about what they do for a living, how busy their calendars are. Why? Because our work and our schedules as men are one of the mainstreams in which we derive significance. Ladies, if you don't understand that about men, you will never understand relationships. It's how we are wired, which means the fast track to emasculating a man is to disrespect him and especially to disrespect him in public. I'm not saying you can't challenge him. Men need to be challenged. If you know anything about my wife, I didn't marry a yes woman. She ain't no coming to America bride. You remember the bride and coming to America? Whatever you like. Jump up and down, bark like a... No, that ain't, that ain't Sister Loritz. She, you know, 
you should have married the girl from coming to America if that's what you wanted. That is not my wife. So I'm not saying women need to be docile and passive and never speak their mind. I'm not saying that. The Bible talks about admonishment. But what I am saying, when you do that, make sure to follow Paul's exhortation to speak the truth in love. Packaging is everything. We men have a felt need to feel significant. Now, let me move to the ladies. And this is going to be the longest point in our message. And the next two are just, are just kind of two, two quick points. But, but, but here's what you need to understand, men, about women. At the deepest places of a woman's heart, women have a felt need to feel secure. Ladies got it. Y'all so smart, y'all. Y'all so smart. At the deepest place of a woman's heart, she has, she comes into this world with a profound felt need to feel significant. I mean, excuse me, to feel secure. Now, hear me. I'm not saying women don't need to feel significant. I'm not saying men don't need to feel secure. I'm just talking about the driving, li- the, the driving need that a woman has. Now, what in the world does this have to do with Genesis chapter 24? Has everything to do with it. If you were to do a time lapse on Genesis chapter 24, one of the things that you would, you would discover in, in Genesis chapter 24 is that really, uh, once Eleazar gets into town, sits down at the well, he prays a big prayer. Some of us can recall as we unpack that. And he, the essence of his prayer is, God, I am praying as I'm trying to find a woman for my master, that's Abraham's son, Isaac, I am praying for a selfless woman. So here's what I want. Uh, whatever woman comes to me and not only offers to give me water, but to give my 10 cam- camels water, that's the one. And so that's Rebecca. That's what she does. From the time he meets Rebecca till the time Rebecca leaves with him to leave her family to go to Abraham's house to meet Isaac, two days and one night go by. Now, some of you may be going, this just doesn't seem wise. What makes a woman leave after two days and one night to leave what she knows to venture out into the unknown, to marry a man she's never seen before. Let me draw a parenthesis. Let me just say, different culture, different time. I'm not saying that's how you should roll right now. I know he's got a lot of game to him, but not two days and one night game, all right? So I'm not saying that's how you should do, that's how you should do now. That, that was far more prevalent back then, but what gives, it's still the principle is, is in order, what gives her confidence to leave so quickly? Look at verse 50. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, the thing has come from the Lord. Now Laban is her brother, Bethuel is the father. The thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go and let her be the wife of your master's son as the Lord has spoken. Verse 52, when Abraham's servant heard their words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord and the servant, watch it now, verse 53, and the servant brought out jewelry of silver and of gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave to her brother and to her mother costly ornaments. Let me read it again, verse 53. And the servant brought out jewelry or silver and of gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. Stop right there. Scholars tell us what's going on here is um, he's not flossing. He's not trying to show how much money he's got. He's not trying to show how deep his pockets are. What's going on here in this text is what scholars call the bride price. 
Now, I, I, I went to, when I went to school in Philly, um, one, of, one of my classmates was from Africa. One of the first things I, I noticed about him, this brother was working hard. Uh, he was burning the midnight oils, working about three different jobs, and um, just extraordinarily hard. So I just built up the courage one day, struck up a conversation with him. I'm like, man, you're working an awful lot of jobs. What's going on here? He goes, well, man, where I'm from in Africa, uh, I've actually fallen in love with a girl back there. Uh, I want to get engaged to her, and, and yet her parents are demanding for the bride price uh, that I've got to come up with 10 cows. I'm like, 10 cows? Like, and a ring, dog? Like ten, and a ring? He's like, yeah, you Americans get off easy. He's got to come up with 10 cows. And he started explaining to me why. He goes, fundamentally, you need to know, Brian, that one of the things that her parents are looking for is, can this person take care of my daughter? So that fundamentally, here's what you need to understand, the bride price communicates these three words. When, Rebe- when, 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 when the servant is giving the bride price, here's what's being communicated. I got you. I got you. This I got you is not just financial. So don't hear this as the Bible teaching women are to stay at home while the husbands work. That is not, not, not the essence of this text. Praise God, hallelujah, thank you, Jesus. That might fly in Memphis where you can buy a house for $20,000. That ain't working in the Bay. All right? So don't take that to hear that I got you means women have to be at home all the time while the man is out in the marketplace working. No, this is, this is an, I, this is, a, um, it's a comprehensive thing in which what's happening here with the bride price is Isaac is ministering to her felt need of security. I got you. I got you physically as your protector. I got you financially. I've got you emotionally. I've got you. You're secure. Why does she leave? Because when she receives this bride price, it is speaking to her felt need of security. I remember, forgive the crassness of this uh, illustration, but I, I remember watching Chris Rock on the Oprah Winfrey show some years ago. Gosh, I've quoted Oprah twice today. I don't, didn't watch her regularly. Um, but here's Chris Rock at the Oprah Winfrey Show, and she's asking him about parenting. He goes, yeah, I got daughters. And she goes, well, what's your aim in parenting daughters? He says, my goal is just to keep them off the pole. And he goes on to say, here's how I do it. I'm nurturing. I'm speaking into their hearts and lives. I'm spending time with them. In essence, what he's saying is, they, my daughters need to know I got you. Every woman that comes into the world, that is the heart cry. And the first man she needs to hear, I got you from, is her daddy. If a woman does not feel that from her father, it sets her on a trajectory of unhealth. You and I are experiencing what I'm calling the pandemic of fatherlessness. It is an epidemic that is ravaging all communities, not just the black community or the Hispanic community. Not one ethnic demographic has a monopoly on sorry men. Sorry men, not one ethnic demographic has a monopoly on sorry men. Sorry men come in all shapes and sizes and colors. And because fathers are not handling their business as provider, priest, and protector, 
what is happening is a generation of women are being unleashed into the culture who are now searching on a frantic search to find security when it should have come from their father's lap. So I want you to look at this. Over 20 million kids grow up today in fatherless homes. 47% of them are in poverty. 71% of teenage pregnancies involve women from fatherless homes. Girls who grow up in fatherless homes are 92% more likely to divorce than those who grew up in two-parent homes. Girls who grew up, grow up in fatherless homes have higher rates of depression, eating disorders, and suicide. When a young girl does not feel from her daddy, I got you, sets her on a trajectory of unhealth. I know my context. I'm talking to some men. You're no longer with the woman who, who birthed your children. I should hope that you're writing checks. It's elementary, 101. I should hope that you're paying bills. But what you also need to know is that child needs more than you writing checks. So I don't know what went down with you and the mama. A man shows up. A man gives security. If not, here's what happens. I don't know if you ever saw the documentary called Amy on Amy, about Amy Winehouse, that great prolific singer. Amy Winehouse makes this statement. She says, the day my daddy left was the day I died as a little girl. And the rest of her life was an emotional tailspin, trying to find security. So she turns to the bottle. She gets addicted to alcohol. She gets addicted to drugs. She has an eating disorder because now she's trying to find security based on what the mirror tells her. And this incredible, prolific singer ends up dying in her 20s because she never felt, I got you. Man came to my dad one day, true story. And he said, I, I want your daughter's hand in marriage. My dad said, you're a nice guy, but you're still living with your mama. Move out your mama's house, then come back and talk to me. Why? My dad needed to know, if I'm going to hand my daughter off to another man, I need to know that you can say, I got you. I done invested 20-something years here. I got you. I got you. Now, what does this mean? What, is, what this means in dating men, and I'm, I'm just going to be hard on you. What this means in dating is the law of averages says that woman you're taking out, not in every case, but the law of averages says that woman you're taking out has probably got some security issues. It's quiet in here. Such was the case with, with, um, with my wife, and I'm not going to get into all the details of it. She grew up in a broken home. Praise God, her father has since come to faith in Jesus Christ, but he didn't handle his business growing up. So now... When Corey and I start dating in the late 90s, of course there's some trust issues. Of course there's some vulnerability issues. Of course there's, she's got her defenses up. 
And by God's grace, I start putting in time. By God's grace, I just start, start being consistent with my word. By God's grace. And I'll never forget it, sweetheart, that that night when we got engaged, I'll never forget what she said to me. With tears in her eyes, she looked at me and says, please don't change. Because what she was experiencing was a new narrative. Single men, when you date a woman, you've got one of three choices. One of three. Number one, you can continue just another chapter in a long narrative of sorry men that this woman has probably encountered. So you, so you can just write the same old story of saying stuff with your mouth and acting totally different with your actions. Until you get what you want, then you're out. That book's been on the New York Times bestseller. It's a sorry book. You, you want to write another chapter in that book? Or you can go on the other extreme. You can go, you know what, this thing's going somewhere. I, I'm going to start communicating to her. I got you, I got you, I got you. Or you can go, I don't know where this thing's headed. I'm not ready to say, I got you. But here's what I will do. I'm going to treat you with such honor and respect that even if we do break up, I'm going to leave you with some hope. Those are your three choices. Continue the legacy of sorriness. Venture down to the road of marriage, but you say, I got you. Or you can actually say, you know what? By the end of this relationship, if we break up, I'm going to deliver back to society a woman who's in a better place now than what, than what she was when we first met. Y'all getting this word today? Got you. Second thing. Second thing. I'm leaving. Let's have some fun with this. Uh, let's have... Sister Regina and, uh, and Elder Keith, y'all mind just coming up here and having a seat at the table? Let, let's, let's, just have, let's just have a little fun here. S Sister Regina and Elder Keith. I got you. So we're going to sit Regina at one, one end, and Elder Keith, I want you to be here. Um, is Carlos and Ruby here? Let's have Alejandro and, uh, and Michelle. Come on down. The price is right. Now, as they're coming, as they're coming, I, I want you to look. This is the second thing that you have to say, and it's going to really, um, it, you won't have a great marriage if you, won't, if you won't say this. In fact, some of you all married folk, it's, it's going to touch a nerve. But I need you to hear, Alejandro and Michelle, you guys just, just grab those seats right there. I need you to hear this in verse 57. Let's back up to verse 56. But he said to them, this is a servant, do not delay me since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away that I may go to my master. Verse 57. They said, let us call the young woman and ask her. Verse 58. And they called Rebecca and said to her, will you go with this man? She said, I will go. So they sent away, say sent away. They sent away Rebecca, their sister and her nurse and Abraham's servant and his men. Healthy marriages 
are predicated on the principle of leaving. Let me unpack this for you. Look at the screen with me at Genesis chapter 2. This is of the first marriage. It says this, Genesis 2, 24. Therefore, a man shall leave, say leave, his father and his mama. This in the ESV. And hold, Ebonic standard version, and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So God says, if you ain't ready to leave, you ain't ready to get married. Rebecca leaves. All right, let's deal with this. Let's say uh, Keith and Regina are the parents. And Alejandro and Michelle have been dating, engaged, and now they've just said, I do. Okay? So, no, I'm sorry. Y'all ain't siblings. I, I, that kind of that came. Let, let's say you're the parents of Alejandro and Michelle came from somewhere else. All right? So, here's what I want you to see. Psychologists say this, psychologists say this, that in any successful marriage, they always use the, the dinner table analogy. What's happened historically, Alejandro as the son has grown up in a house where he's just used to his parents being at the head. But now fundamentally what has to happen in marriage is you have got to change seats. If you don't change seats, you're not going to have a good marriage. So in order for this to work, Alejandro, you and Keith change seats. Michelle, you and Regina change seats. So Alejandro and Michelle have just started their own family. Now here's the deal. We still want mama and daddy at the table. Bible says to honor your parents. We still want them at the table. But they've got to be in the right seat. So when we talk about the principle of leaving, here's what we're saying. Young man, you can't be a mama's boy, get married, and have a great marriage. Young girl, you can't be a daddy's girl and have a great marriage. Here's what we're saying. We still want mama and daddy around. They just need to be in their right seat. Now, this goes both ways. I'll come back to that. Part of what that means is, as they've changed seats, is one of the tussles in the early days of marriage is that Keith and Regina are going, to, are going to want to function as the head. When that happens, Alejandro, because that's his mom and dad, not Michelle, Alejandro is going to have to put them back in their place. See, this happens all the time. Now, my mama is a, is a great godly woman, but my mom has a strong personality. She comes into the room, my, my, my mom, she just, she's just used to running things. She's used to running things. And in the early days of marriage, it would cause stress 
because mama would come in the room just being mama. She doesn't realize this about her. And my wife now is coming to me going, uh, I need you to say something. <laughs> and then me, I'm used to mama. Me, I'm telling Corey, well, can't you just chill out? Why don't you say something? <laughs> That's not how this thing needs to work. Now hear me. As an adult, the Bible calls me to honor mama. As an adult, I don't have to obey mama. So I honor her. I, I remember one time mom came to my house. She said, where do you get all this money for a TV? We were living in Charlotte, North Carolina. I said, mama, you handle Atlanta, I handle Charlotte. <laughs> what am I doing here? I'm saying to my wife, I got you as protector and leader and I'm not going to outsource mama onto you and tell you to deal with mama. I'm going to be the go-between. And when I step in and be the go-between, I am now not only protecting her, but I'm forcing mom to come out of that seat as the head. Still want you at the table, but you, can't, you don't run this. You guys with me? You getting this word? Now, now let me say something to young folk. Let me say something to you. And I promise you, old folk, older seasoned saints, are going to, they're going to amen this. This don't work if you're trying to act grown, but then still asking for money. <laughs> now, if you're going to be grown, you need to be all the way grown. Brother Carlton, you with me on that one? All, he just gave his daughter away the other day. All the way grown. You with me? Now, I'm being serious about that. Because when you now circle back and ask for money, what you are inevitably doing is you're putting them at the head of the table. So one of the most powerful moments in a wedding is when I say, who gives this woman to be married to this man? And the handing off is symbolic of this principle of leaving. You can't have great relationships without leaving. Let's give our guests a round of applause as they return to their seats. <laughs> Let's go home on this one. So Rebecca leaves, verse 67, last verse. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebecca, and she became his wife. Hear it, underline it. And he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. You and I live in a culture, in a society that is vigorously, daily discipling us in the area of love, sex, and relationships. They want to minimize love to a feeling. But what does the Bible have to say about love? Look with me on the screen at 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 8. Paul writes, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. I love it. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. 
Now, whenever I, do, whenever I do a wedding, I always come to 1 Corinthians 13, and one of the things I always tell them is, in all those descriptions of love, in the great love chapter, not one of them, not one of these descriptions is a feeling. Does love involve feelings at times? Absolutely. But if I only waited to show my wife love when I felt like it, there would be many weeks she wouldn't feel loved. Love is a commitment. Love is not something that happens to you, but it is a choice you make. Love is a choice. It is a choice that is to be born out in the realm of commitment. I choose to be patient. I choose to be kind. I choose to bear all things. I choose to believe all things. I choose to endure all things. It is a choice. So that when you biblically tell someone, I love you, what you are saying is, I'm strapped in, ride or die. I remember going back to when, when me and my wife were, were, were uh, courting. And yes, I'm going to be a man, you know. I'm going I'm to I'm tell her first that I love her. And she's laughing. And, uh, man, I had it set up, man. I had her come to the house, and I cooked. Remember what, what I cooked, sweetheart? You don't remember? <laughs> oh, God, you just gave me a bunch of ammo. Um, I cooked catfish. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And red beans and rice. I, I threw down, y'all. I, I threw it. So I had the candles set up, a little bit of Casey and JoJo on the radio. <laughs> That ain't a gospel group, by the way. And, you know, put the food out. She ate. And then it was my moment. Looked her in the eyes and said, sweetheart, I love you. Now, why is that funny? You know how she responded to me? It's exactly what she did. (sighs) Why did you have to say that? I was crushed. A man's driving need is to feel significant. But you know what? Her response is actually close to the biblical response. What she was saying in that moment is, this is serious. This is serious. These are, these are weighty, serious words. Let me tell you how serious it is. Paul gives a couple descriptions. I'm just going to give you two. He says, when you tell someone you love them, here's what you're saying. Love is patient. What does it mean to be patient? Let me give you this definition. Patience is the decision to move at someone else's pace instead of pressuring them to move at yours. Patience is the decision to move at someone else's pace instead of pressuring them to move at yours. That's tweetable. I'll give it to you one more time. (laughs) Patience is the decision to move at someone else's pace instead of pressuring them to move at yours. Now, here's the reality. You get into a relationship with someone... 
Here's what's going to happen. You're going to see some things in that person you don't like. And you're going to assume that you're the fourth member of the Trinity. <laughs> who can change them. And the truth is, you can't change nobody. You can't even change yourself. So that when you get into relationships, when, when you get into marriage, it's like buying a used car. As is. All sales are final. And you're going to see some things in this person that you're going to want to see change. And maybe some of those get, get changed quickly. But now there's going to be some things that it just ain't going to change until Jesus comes back. I can tell you right now, I can think of three things that, uh, that my wife, it, it just ain't going to change until God comes back. Number one, she ain't never going to see a scary movie. I, I had a good friend of mine call me the other day talking about, man, you need to see the movie Get Out. See, see the movie Get Out. I said, is it a scary movie? He goes, yeah, it's just a little scary. I said, well, Sister Larissa ain't going to see that, man. Man, put it on speakerphone. I can talk her into it. I'm trying to tell you, save your breath. She is not going to see a scary movie. Uh, that's, that's my wife. That's not changing. She don't like feet. I don't care how cute your feet are. They could have your initials encrusted in diamonds. She don't like feet. That ain't changing. That, 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 ain't, that ain't changing. Third, she can't stand being tickled. She's the only person I've ever met who gets angry when you tickle them. And I've been on a mission for 18 years to get her to laugh. That's not going to happen. Okay? So here's the deal. We get into a relationship with people. We see stuff we don't like. We see stuff we want to change. Some of that stuff may change, but some of that stuff is just not going to change. And here's what Paul says. You, you, if, when, if you love them, patience. Patience. I'm not going to pressure you to move at my pace. I'm going to move at yours. Secondly, he says that love is kind. You know what kindness is? It is love's response to weakness. Kindness is love's response to weakness. Here's what I want you to see. Both of these descriptions, patience and kindness, watch it now, it assumes that you see the worst in the other person. I get this all the time from singles. They're dating. They've fallen in love, and they go, well, well how long? How, how long is long enough before you know it's time to take this to another level, like engagement or marriage? And my answer is always the same. Hang in there long enough to at least try to see the worst in the other person. Have a good fight. See them on their best days. Because right now, in the beginning, y'all are lying to each other. That man ain't never opened a car door for anybody else in his life. And once you get married, you're going to have a struggle getting in the car good enough before he takes off. All right? So you just, you, you just need to hang in there and you need to see the worst. You just need to see the worst. You, you, the goal of dating is you, you want to see, I, you, by the time you get married, you want to be able to minimize the surprises. Now, you're still going to be surprised. Okay? But you want to date long enough to get a good look, and you, 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 want to be, you, you don't want to be surprised as much as possible. So that watch this. I say this humbly to those of you who are single. To date is not to obligate. In other words, you have the right as a single person to go, oh, I don't want to deal with that. You have that right. 
You have the right to go, oh, that's too much debt. I don't want to deal with that. What you don't want to do is, oh, I don't like it, but once we say I do, it'll change. I've told you this before. All weddings change are bank accounts. Weddings do not change people. You marry as is. So, so you need to go, all right, can I say I love you? Because when you say I love you biblically, what you're saying is I'm going to be patient. And this may never change, but I'm going to be patient. And I'm going to be kind in the midst of this to this person. Let's go home on this. Story is told, true story of a woman who got into a horrific car accident. And she had to have multiple surgeries on her face. The last surgery that she had, the doctor struck a nerve that caused her face, her mouth to be twisted badly. She's worried. A couple days later, she takes off the bandages. She doesn't like what she sees in, in, the, in the mirror. She's... She's horrified by what she sees, and her husband hasn't seen her yet with her distorted, twisted mouth. She's wondering what he'll think. Later on that day, her husband comes in for the first time, and he walks right over to her and starts stroking her hair, and he sees her mouth, and the first thing he does is he bends down to kiss her mouth, but in order to kiss her mouth, he had to twist his face to her twisted face in order to match. At the end of the kiss, he says, I love you. Love is seeing the twisted parts of who we are and saying, come hell or high water, ride or die, I'm here. That's what you say when you say, I love you. In sickness and in health, for richer or for poorer. That's why, as long as I'm pastor here, we're not the Gestapo. But there, are, there is no such thing as Christians getting divorced over irreconcilable differences. You got the Holy Spirit living in you. The Holy Spirit is living in them. What do you mean two spirit-filled people can't work it out? The clearest expression to show the agape love we have received from God is that we do it in a marriage context where we say, I see the worst in you, but I'm not leaving. That's what God says to us every day. I see the worst in you, but I'm patient and I'm kind. By the way, these three statements, I got you, I'm leaving, I love you, as the band comes, they're three statements God's made to us. On a hill called Calvary, God paid the bride price. God loved us, and he saw us in the midst of our filth, in the midst of our mess, and he paid the most expensive bride price ever to be paid, and it's not your good works, it's not your church attendance, it's not how much money you give. God says, I'm going to pay the bride price, and the bride price is my son, Jesus Christ. I'm going to send him to die in your, in your place and for your sins. And if you are saved, here's what you can rest assured in, that God's got you. 
Jesus himself says, if you're in God's hand, nothing can remove you from God's hand. You are safe. You are secure. No addiction can remove you. No immorality can remove you. Nothing can remove you from the love of God. Two, Jesus says, I'm leaving. He left heaven, took on flesh, walked among us. Jesus says, once you decide to follow me, I need you to leave this world behind. Our relationship with God doesn't work unless we're saying goodbye to sin, saying goodbye to the world, saying goodbye to old patterns of behavior. But thirdly, daily, God says to us, I love you. Look at what he says in Romans chapter 8. Know in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You didn't work your way into God's love, and you can't work your way out of God's love. God's got you. He left, and he loves you. If you're here today and you don't know Christ as Lord and Savior, how do you turn down that relationship? How do you, there's no other relationship that offers you that. So I want to pray. I want to pray. I want to do two things. I, I, I want to leave the altar open for, for those who don't know Christ as Lord and Savior. I, I just, we, we, we do this often here. I want to extend an opportunity for you to experience this loving God. But I also, and, and we do this on occasion, on Father's Day we pray over men, on Mother's Day we pray over women, and as we're coming to the end of this series on singles, I, I want to just pray over and bless our singles. I want to do that. Let's all say this together. As we prepare to leave today, let's declare it. Father, we bless our singles today. We thank you that because of Christ, they are already complete. We speak holiness, wisdom, and discernment over them in this season. May their dating relationships be so different in Christ-honoring that it serves as a powerful witness to the bay to your glory. You are sent in the name of Jesus.